Our reading from God's Holy Word this morning comes from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16. You have printed in your bulletin all the way to verse 34, but I'll only be reading this morning through verse 27. Beginning in verse 16, Acts chapter 17. This is God's Word. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we've just confessed, your word stands forever. It's the only thing that we can trust and have infallible confidence in. And so we would ask today that you would make that word known to us. And you would, if necessary, by this word, deconstruct false ideas, principles, and practices in our own life. And rebuild us, train us to live godly lives in this present age. That we might be faithful witnesses to the reality of the gospel. We need your Holy Spirit so desperately in this. So give him to us, we ask, in great measure. All of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory. Amen. Some of you may have heard the name Leslie Newbegin. He was a Presbyterian pastor and missionary in the early part of the 20th century. He's written a number of significant works on the relationship between the gospel and culture. Titles like Foolishness to the Greeks and The Gospel in the Pluralistic Age, very well-known books. 
He also wrote a book called A Word in Season, where he speaks about how to season our tongues in the way that they ought to be with the gospel as we seek to communicate it in the age in which we live. In that particular book, Newbigin argues that we, as we share the gospel, uh, must resist two opposite dangers. That's his language. He says, on the one hand, we have the danger of finding no contact point with a culture for the preaching of the gospel. And on the other hand, we have the danger of allowing a point of contact with the culture to determine the way the message is received. On the one hand, the danger of finding no contact point with the culture, meaning not seeing how the gospel speaks to it, how it connects to it, how it's relevant to it. Or on the other hand, the danger of allowing some point of contact, some cultural peace, idol, capital, to become so overwhelming that it determines the way the message is received. He says it's imperative that the Christian learns, in his own language, to steer between these dangers. That's easier said than done. I think Newbegin is on to something really important, but it's much easier said than done. How do we find a point of contact and not allow that point of contact to overwhelm us? Or how do we not so separate ourselves out from the culture that we don't actually spot any point of contact and we wind up creating an echo chamber for the gospel among those who already believe these things and thus is not a plausible message of power for those who need to hear it. Now, Newbegin is simply articulating what many have argued with regards to Christian engagement with the culture and that there's essentially three different approaches. What we might call the adopt, reject, or adapt approaches. The adopt approach is just to assume that the culture and its tide and its current is good and marry ourselves to it and let it take us where it will as we preach the gospel and thus become indistinguishable from the culture. Or to reject the culture, literally or figuratively, to erect, as it were, a wall between us and the culture and then find that no meaningful contact for the message of the gospel to enter into the lives of those around us. There's a temptation to fall on one side of that spectrum or the other. Uh, you'll hear it in phrases that people say. We must meet the culture where it's at. Move towards it. Oh, there's too much culture in the church already. We need to be careful to separate out from it. Now, which approach is right? Don't answer. It's a trick question. It's yes and yes. In different ways, it's yes and yes. But more times than not, we have to actually learn a savvy, a wisdom, a discernment that the Scripture actually teaches us the skill of adaptation in the way that the theologians put it, to engage the culture with the mind of Christ for the purposes of his kingdom. 
to not be in to be in the world but not of the world. Uh, the apostle Paul is seeking to do that here in Acts 17 to not wholly assume the culture and its current and head towards it nor reject it and completely stand against it but to adapt it to work within it for gospel purposes to do so with the mind of Christ. And so for the next few minutes as we look at Acts 17 together, I want to simply reflect on it in three ways with you so that you can derive from the Apostle Paul the wisdom that he displays for us in being faithful ambassadors for Jesus in our time. I want you to see the approach he takes. I want you to see the appeal that he makes. And I want you to see the bridge that he builds. The approach that he takes, the appeal that he makes, and the bridge that he builds. I want to start with the approach that he takes. You'll see it there in verse 17. It says, The apostle Paul reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, when we think of the Greeks, we think about a whole bunch of different things. Maybe some of you think of the epic warriors and battles that the Greeks faced throughout the centuries. Battles like Marathon and Thermopylae. We still today receive inspiration from the stories of these battles passed down throughout uh, lore. Some of you may have seen the movie 300 that came out back in 2006. It was actually inspired uh, by the Battle of Thermopylae, very loosely inspired by the Battle of Thermopylae. We may think of art when we think of the Greeks, particularly their, uh, their pottery, their sculpture, their, their theater. We might think of their buildings, uh, their architecture, the Parthenon, the perspectives and a portion, the Doric and Iconic and Corinthian orders. We may think of their politics. Where would we be without Greek democracy, nation state, and citizenship? But behind all of these advances, many as they are, and we could continue with the Greeks, I would, I would say one of the most fundamental things that we appreciate about the Greeks and that has been passed down to us is the Greek mind. It's the Greek mind. Do you know where Athens actually derives its name? From Athena. From Athena, the goddess of wisdom. She was the goddess that was actually situated in that Parthenon. She became the patron goddess of Athens, a city that would be known for wisdom. It's no wonder then that the great academies of the Western world first began in Athens. And it's no surprise that the fathers of Western philosophy emerged from Athens, Plato, Aristotle, and Socrates. And so when the Apostle Paul is in Athens, he pays attention to the heartbeat of the city. And he comes into the marketplace, the agora, into the synagogue, among the devout persons. And what does he do? He gives them a self-help manual. No, that's not the center of the culture. He, he gives them an emotional inspiration speech. No, it's not what he does. He reasons with them. 
He reasons with them. In order to share the gospel in the context of Athens, Paul does something different than he does in Macedonia. He does something different than what he's going to do in other places as he travels throughout Asia Minor. Here the Apostle Paul comes in, as John Stott puts it, like a Christian Socrates. He comes here in the position of a philosopher. One who comes with a rational dialectic, a dialogue. That literally could mean a Socratic dialogue. That's what that word reason means. That meaning he's listening. He's hearing the questions of the people. He's asking clarifying questions. He's seeking to get underneath the assumptions and the presuppositions. And he's reflecting in such a way so that there's a back and forth in order to create plausibility for the gospel. Now, why is the Apostle Paul doing this? Because he's in Athens. He knows that he's in a place that's reliant upon mind, that has high value on intellect whose namesake is the goddess of wisdom. And so he is not shy about adopting the mind as the leading connecting point for the way in which he postures and conducts himself to minister the gospel in Athens. Interestingly, it worked. We read there in verse 20 that Paul's reasonable dialogue about the gospel began to gain traction with the Epicureans and the Stoics, and we're told that they bring him to the Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus was the very epicenter of intellectual life in Athens. He was brought to the very epicenter. He's telling us things that we've not heard before, foreign deities. He's telling us strange things, this Jesus in resurrection. There's enough plausibility to the dialogues that we've been having with him in the synagogue and the agora and the marketplace and the other temples that we want to bring him now to the very center of intellectual life. And it's there where the Apostle Paul begins to show us just how attuned he is to the heartbeat of this culture. As he approaches it like a philosopher, I want you to see that he appeals to them in the cultural capital of the day. There's a fascinating little note after verse 20. Look at verse 21. Luke says, Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Now that's really important. Because there's all kinds of intellectual traditions. There's intellectual traditions that that are long held. And there can be an impulse to want to preserve the status quo of the intellectual tradition. And we sometimes find that in certain university settings or in certain old world settings. And we, because we're in the 21st century, tend to think of Athens as old world, but it wasn't in Paul's day. It was the new and up and coming progressive world. Athens is not interested in an intellectual culture of yesteryear. Athens is intellectually trendy. The people want to hear what's fresh, what's new, what's hip. Paul, tell us what's word on the street, man. Where have you been? What did you hear when you were there? This is fascinating. This is the spirit of Athens. This is the ethos and the culture of Athens. When we were there, the 10-member team, just a month ago, 
Tim Kumar, who's planting in Exarchia, one of the suburbs of Athens, says that still today the tradition in Athens, the tradition that is the long-held principle or policy of the culture, is to always be interested in what's new. Now, in hearing that, I would imagine that a few of you in this room had some personal reactions to that verse, verse 21. They're always interested in something new, and some of you went, mm, man, you shouldn't chase after something new. You need to get back to what's tried and true. You need to go to the old paths. The old paths are always the best path, is what Mama told me. And I have seen that it is true over the course of my life. Some of us had that reaction, right, in our minds. and Others of us... Uh, maybe I've said to ourselves, listen, I've read a lot of history. There's a lot of crazy ideas out there. And every time I hear my grandparents talk about the good old days and I actually read about the good old days, I think, I don't know where they went. Uh, it doesn't sound very good. I'm interested in hearing something new. Uh, we might have had a variety of internal responses when we read verse 21. The question is, do we have this response? How can I use the trendy intellectual culture of Athens for the purpose of Christ? Did we get to that question? Uh, normally, we, we, we mainly get to the point of whether we agree with it or not. Do I like it or not? Do I agree with it or not? Do I accept it or reject it or not? And we don't get to the places, could this be used as cultural capital for the sharing of the gospel? Could it be used as cultural capital for the sharing of the gospel? I think this is what it means when the Apostle Paul says, take every thought captive for the obedience of Christ. And I think that's what it means because I see the Apostle Paul here in this context actually not condemn the trendy intellectual nature of Athens, but use it against itself in a loving and effective way to be able to share the gospel. Why do I say that? Because he actually brings it in to his gospel appeal. So this is the approach that he takes, but what about the appeal that he makes? Well, I want you to see that in verse 22 and 23. This is his speech on the Areopagus, and I want you to see he brings both mind and newness into his communication. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects for your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Now, two things I want to show you that the Apostle Paul does. He does more than two things, but let's look at two things that he does in verses 22 and 23. First, he appeals to the mind. Now, why do I say that? He says, I've come to tell you something that you don't know. But you kind of know a little bit about it. But you, I've come to tell you more. I've come to give you an enlightened mind. I see that you recognize there's an unknown God out there. I've come to be a witness for him. And I'm going to tell you something that you've never heard before. He appeals to the mind. But doesn't he appeal to it in a way that's trendy? That's new? Paul brings the gospel into the cultural desire. What is the cultural desire? Not to come and tell you what you've already known and to reinforce and to bolster what we already believe together, but I've come to tell you something that's radical that you've never heard before. I've come to tell you something in line with the desire or the pulsating center of the culture, and I've come to enlighten you in a way in which you've not yet heard 
What the Apostle Paul is simply doing here in his preachment in Acts 17 is paying attention to the fact that it's much more likely that the Apostle Paul will gain an audience with a culture like Athens if he appeals to their mind and he does it in the sense of being something new. And he knows it. Do you know when the Apostle Paul goes to the synagogue, he often, what does he often do? He connects his message to the Old Testament. Why does he do that? Because he's talking to Jews. What do they trust? What are they looking for? They're making sure he cites the right authors. That's what they're looking for. He's more than willing to oblige them for the sake of Christ. Does Paul mention the Bible in this sermon? No. It's really noteworthy. Now, should we extrapolate from that that Paul was embarrassed by the Bible, so he didn't use the Bible? No. If he had used Old Testament Jewish scriptures in order to do so, might he have placed a defense of heart that would have imposed, as it were, a lack of hearing on the message that he came to declare? Very much so. Very much so. Does he speak biblical truth? Oh, yes. All the way through. But he's going to cite different people. In fact, in the context of this, which we won't have the chance to look look at, he actually speaks of one of their poets, Erastus. And he speaks of one of their, their philosophers, Euripides. He's beginning to note, I know your sources. I've borrowed from them. I know the people that you trust. I'm not a Johnny come lately. I'm aware of Athenian culture. He shows respect for it and deference towards the people. And in so doing, he builds a relationship that connects across a cultural boundary. And he brings the message of the gospel into relationship to their hearts and minds. Now, in order to really grasp this, I want to just pause and in one sense say nothing more but continue to illustrate this. Because... This is a reality that you can bring directly into 21st century Franklin, Nashville, Tennessee. I want to just give you an example. If you really listen to modern day uh, North Americans and their conception of the experience of Christianity, you're likely going to hear something like this. Christianity is really just about conforming to moral standards and teachings. It's about what you do behaviorally. That's the center of Christianity. Now, before we get to the content of that statement, I want to ask you, are there assumptions behind that statement? Yeah, there are two really big assumptions behind that statement. Let me name one of them first. The first is this. I know what Christianity is about. That's just present in the commune. You know, Christianity is really about conformity to moral standards and teachings. That's what it's about. The assumption that's in there is, I know about Christianity. That's not an assumption that Athens had. If you would have told them, I've come to tell you about Christianity, they would have been like, what? What's, Christian- What's Christianity? What's he doing? Talking about this foreign deity, Jesus, and this weird thing called the rest. It was unknown. We face a different challenge. Ours is known but misunderstood. Ours is known but not really known. Ours is known and twisted. Ours is known and confused. That is, I have a category for it. I know what Christianity is. And because I know what Christianity is, here's the default assumption of the heart. I don't need to consider it anymore. 
I don't need to consider it anymore. So from the very beginning, the assumption of that kind of statement is you've got to win a hearing with me. You've got to win a hearing with me. There's also a second thing that's in that. It's really about conforming to a narrow set of moral teachings. The second thing about that is Christianity is really very small-minded. It's really kind of naive. It's really for people who really haven't been thinking. It's not really thoughtful. It's just about restricting behavior. There's no flexibility in it. There's no diversity in it. There's no range of expression. It's just a straitjacket that fits some people and doesn't fit others. But for the thoughtful person, they can see through its contradictions. They see into the world and it has much deeper complexity. Uh, many have this assumption about Christianity. In fact, when you begin to dialogue with them about science, they just kind of assume you've checked your mind at the door. You know? You've blindly followed the pages of Scripture and you're, you're unwilling to look at the geological record and uh, make any sense of these two things. And the assumption is that to be a Christian in our day is just to be small-minded. Now, is this a true conception of Christianity? No. But they don't know that. And in many cases, let's go a step further, their experience of Christianity has enforced that and has caused them to form that assumption by relationship to people who have the moniker or, voc or, or nomenclature of Christian. So what do you do in a context like that? Whereas you say, no, that's not like Christianity. It's not what he really teaches, but that's been their experience. Well, what do we learn from Paul in this passage? What does he teach us? Well, one of the first things you have to do is to say, actually, you need to hear something new about Christianity. Something new. You have to raise the possibility and begin to build evidence for the fact that the Christianity that they've run up against is not Christianity as it really is. You've got to open up the possibility for a fresh hearing, a new teaching on Christianity. The default of our perspective in engaging with the culture means that I've got to win a hearing. And to do that, I'm going to have to often deconstruct false assumptions and do it respectfully, even compassionately, knowing that we Christians have often given Christianity a bad name. That would be one way to do it. You know the second thing we might have to do? Is to show them from the text of Scripture that Christian teaching throughout history and in the Bible is not primarily about what we do, but about what Jesus has done. It's about what Jesus has done. You know, in a conversation where someone says, you know, I just can't get over Christian teaching with regards to sexual ethics. Well, if you start there on the cultural ground, you'll probably get nowhere. But if you begin to center the discussion of Christianity not around what we can or can't do, but around what Jesus has done, which is actually the very center of the faith, then you can begin to describe the freedom that we're called to and enjoy as Christians. You see, by talking about freedom is a very important thing in our culture. If there is one high value that our culture has, it's freedom. 
And you know, there's one thing that if, if the perspective of Christianity in our culture is restriction, it will never get a hearing. It'll, be, it'll shut down before it begins. It's up to the believer to begin to reflect deeply, how is Christianity freeing? To begin to discuss how what the world calls freedom actually leads to greater slavery. And what is called freedom doesn't wind up being free. To talk that through rationally, to express it by illustration and example, to tell personal story, to hearken to the reality of the way the culture moves towards enslavement of the flesh, addictions, pathologies, destructive patterns, where the more we talk about freedom, the more angry we get at each other. But it could be that we were missing the kind of freedom that the Bible's talking about. The kind of freedom that the Apostle Paul invites us into in Galatians. For freedom you have been set free. To what freedom were I designed? To what freedom is real freedom? You see, when you begin to actually pay attention to what the culture cares about and begin to bridge from that cultural capital into the reality of the gospel, all of a sudden, a hearing is developed. You begin to have a freshness, a newness, a, a reconsideration that begins to rise up in the hearts and the minds of those who are around and says, I need to give Christianity a second look. Now, is that a surefire way for convincing unto complete plausibility and certainty? No, but it sure is a great way to love them. It sure is a great way to love them. Maybe some of you out there are hearing this and thinking, goodness, this is a lot of work. Love is sometimes tough. It takes time. It takes study. It takes listening. Paying attention. Reflecting. Considering. Sometimes apologizing when you've made a mistake. Do you see it? 1 Corinthians 9 is really a commentary on Acts 17. I want you to see that 1 Corinthians 9, which we read earlier in our liturgy this morning, actually unpacks for us what Paul is doing in Acts 17. Paul says, though I am free from all, he's totally free in the gospel. I'm, I'm free, totally free in the gospel. I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. Paul says I'm totally free. I don't have to be a Greek. I don't have to be a Jew. What's so beautiful about the gospel is I, I can be a Greek if I need to be a Greek for the sake of the gospel. And I can be a Jew if I need to be a Jew for the sake of the gospel. I can pick it up and I can put it down, but I'm not held captive by the cultural realities. I use them to take captive for obedience for the purposes of Christ. I use them. They're resources for me to be able to share the gospel. Now, when the Apostle Paul is doing that, I want you to see that as an expression of love. A lot of times we just don't want to do the hard work. It requires to love the culture and the place and the people, really the people. And to engage with them in such a way 
so that we're seeking to answer the really deep and important questions that are on their hearts and minds and give plausible gospel reason for why Christianity deserves their consideration. You see, in 1 Corinthians 13, just a little bit later in that same book, you all know this passage very well. There's that one description of love, though, that gets buried in all of the other descriptions, right? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It isn't arrogant or rude. But listen, listen to this. Love does not insist on its own way. It, it doesn't insist on its own way. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with someone? And you're like, I wish that they would just think this way. I wish they'd listen to me in this way. I really think they should, they should be like this. They're not. Get over it. Love them where they are. If you feel that, guess what? They feel that from you. And that is not appealing for Christianity. That is not a faithful witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he say to you, I wish you were like that. I wish you would come my way before I'll come your way. <laughs> is that what he did? No, he, he bridged heaven and earth to make you his own. Why can I say that? Because that's what Paul says in Philippians 2. Listen to what he says. When he says love does not insist on its own way, he's just talking about Jesus. Paul says this in Philippians 2. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but look to the interests of others. Have this mind. Have this mind. Walk around with this mind which is yours, you've got it, it's already yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. Friends, the more we are saturated and are filled with the kind of love that Jesus had when he came to earth, to live a perfect life on our behalf, to die the death that we could not die, to be raised again on the third day, to be ascended and right now intercedes for us. He's right now serving you. He's right now serving you in the heavenly places. The more that begins to get into your heart, the more gospel-centered you are. You know what happens? The more culturally flexible you become. The more easily adaptable you become. The more you can pick up and put down things and move between, because it's all for the purposes of Christ. You're not always going through whether, I don't you know, like her clothes. I don't care about his food. How can I use all of this for Christ? Have this mind. Have this mind that's among you. The more that that mind begins to form within you, what I think begins to happen is... We begin to say it this way. Have this mind among yourselves. Do not count your cultural comforts, preferences, or interests as something to be grasped. But consider them nothing. And consider yourself nothing. So that you can live as a servant to others for the sake of the gospel. Do you see, when we begin to serve this way, we begin to talk this way, when we begin to conduct the manner of our lives this way, we're loving people with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
with the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. His love for us is that he laid aside all of his comforts and preferences and privileges and interests from a Godward standpoint, and he laid it all down in order to show his love to you and draw you into fellowship with him. The more that gets in, the more that glorious gospel gets in, the more that that doesn't just shape the content of your words, it shapes the whole form of the manner of your life. And the reality is all of us in some way, shape, or form put off a cultural aroma. (laughs) And for some people, let's be really honest, our cultural aroma stinks. And sometimes we need to be scrubbed clean of that aroma in the gospel. So that we don't make the stumbling block of the gospel a bigger stumbling block. Because we're adding a whole bunch of preferences to it. In the way that we live. You want to make someone feel loved and reconsider Christianity? Then actually love them by taking up their own interest and bringing those interests into relationship with Jesus. Now, next week we'll take this a step far further in connecting gospel bridges but learning. To tell that message in a compelling way that actually turns the categories of the culture on its head and makes Christianity all that more mesmerizingly beautiful. But it's my prayer this week as I've put in the taking of the message home that you would take the principles of building a bridge to the gospel and you would try it out yourself by taking an idol of success, which I've suggested you do, By taking the longing within our culture for peace, of which they can't seem to find. And say, how could a conversation about the turmoil that we're in lead you to the one turmoil, the cross, that settles all turmoil? How could could a focus on the work of Christ connected to the heartbeat and the needs of the culture, begin to open up gospel conversations in a powerful way for you. Reflect on that this week. Don't let this be a message that gets put on the shelf as soon as you walk out those back doors. Let this become a living reality for the formation of your life that you would have this mind, this mind of Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, We ask that your spirit would do that, even as I urge that. I believe as Paul would from this passage, and I believe as he shows us. But Lord, you've got to set the burden in our heart as we talked last week. You've got to provoke us. You've got to provoke in us a longing for your glory, a grief for the brokenness of the world, and a love and a compassion that drives us to do something. Father, I just pray right now for those who feel provoked in this room and whom the evil one is going to want to pluck that seed out. And they have someone on their minds. They have an impulse in their heart to go and share the truth of the gospel and to step out in holy and godly risk in order to make the love of Jesus known. And it will be so easy, Lord, to just forget this moment. I ask that you'd make it so memorable that it would be unforgettable. 
and that you would make every single one of us restless until we do what you've called us to do. And Father, for those who will try it and it will fail this week, I pray that you would keep them from discouragement. I pray that you would teach them that their performance in sharing the gospel doesn't affect their standing with you. And you are just so good that you can use whatever it is that they botch up for your glory. And that's why we love you. And for those this week, Lord, who may indeed in obedience speak the truth of the gospel and you might be pleased to move through the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that you would give them joy in the work to the degree, Lord, that it won't even feel like work. And that you would blow through your Spirit fresh wind into the sails of our heart. And we would, by your grace, Go out into the harvest, into the fields. For you tell us they are white. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. And give us wills to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.